Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Tracks. My name is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing great, Bob. This uh, episode of Babylon 5 that we were reviewing this week was a really weird episode until the last five minutes, which kind of like sealed the deal, I think, for this season. We learn a huge, huge spoiler type thing at the end. So uh, if you haven't seen this episode, please watch it before you, uh, before you listen to our podcast. Right. So tonight we're covering uh, Babylon 5 Season 2, Episode 11, All Alone in the Night, which originally aired on the 15th of February, 1995, as well as DS9 Season 3, Episode 14, Heart of Stone, which originally aired on the 6th of February, 1995. Looking at All Alone in the Night in our A-plot, Sheridan and a Narn pilot, Talon, are abducted by the Stribe, Alien collectors who are occasionally minor servants of the shadows, causing Sheridan to miss his meeting with General Haig. And then in the B-plot, we've got Delenn summoned by the other members of the Minbari Great Council to be demoted for, quote, becoming alien to them, unquote, which is a power play by Nehrun and the warrior cast to uh, take away a seat from the religious cast on the council and tip the balance of the cast forces. And then in the C-plot, we've got Franklin uh, betting the pilot Ramirez that Mars will get swept in the baseball playoffs. But then Franklin is unable to save Ramirez from radiation and poisoning that Ramirez sustained during Sheridan's abduction. Is that really a C-plot, Bob? Come on. <laughs> I think it's a C-plot. I think it's yeah, a C-plot. I, I, I just... We got a D-plot, too. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Hit us with that D-plot. We, we finally see Garibaldi offended by something because uh, Franklin makes a Helen Keller joke to Ramirez about the Martian ball team. Oh, that's a whole plot in and of itself, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wheels within wheels, Matt. Wheels within wheels. All right. So for starters, let me ask you this. The, the Stribe or the Strebe, right? I don't remember how you said it. Are they meant to be the greys that we're used to seeing on Earth? Yeah, I think they're supposed to stand in for the greys, although... There's another species of greys that you see a couple times in Babylon 5. I think we've already seen them, that they're called, like, the Vri. Yes. I want to say they're the Vri. They were in the episode with one of the courtroom episodes. Yeah, we saw, like, somebody, like, suing the Vri for kidnapping their grandfather or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I I think the Vri are supposed to be the more comic version of that, and the Strebe or the Stribe are supposed to be the uh, more serious version of that. I guess. So when Sheridan is abducted by the by the Stribe, Strebe, whatever, I'm just going to keep saying Strebe, Strebe until I, one of them clicks. The scene where he's trapped on the table, that is actually, and it took me a minute to figure it out, but that's actually in all much of the 1993 movie Fire in the Sky. Did you ever see this movie? No, I never even heard of it. Oh my gosh. This movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid, Bob. Like, it made me scared of aliens. Like... I used so it's to like, an alien abduction movie? Oh, yes. And it's based on a, like, a, I'm putting in quotations, true story. Uh, mm-hmm. that this, uh, these guy, this guy got abducted and they, you know, probed him. The classic alien type story, you know what I mean? Like alien abduction, you get probed and you get sent back. But I just remember it as a kid because there was one scene in the film where he's stuck on a table and he's got something over him, kind of like Sheridan did. And it mm-hmm. was keeping him in place. And then, like, it, there was a tiny hole where his eye was, and then this needle comes down, and is about to, like, stick it in his eye. 
and it just scared me to death. It was really and, gross, even for ninety. Everybody for, loves uh, trauma to the eye. That's uh, that's how you get people. Yeah, for a nineteen ninety three film, it was in like they were just showing the commercials on like regular TV too, and it just freaked me out. Was it a TV movie or a feature film? No, a feature film. And was it more of like a horror movie, or was it more just supposed to be like a kind of like serious drama in as much as you can have that about alien abduction? Yeah, it was more of a horror movie, like what if aliens abducted you and like, you know, did nasty okay. stuff to you. Yeah, I think that was more okay. what it was supposed to be. The name of the Streeb or the Stribe is named after a, a writer who I think both did fiction and did sort of like quote unquote true reports of alien abductions. I want to say his name was Whitney Stryber. So I think that's where they got their name. So the, yeah, there was that whole kind of big literature. I think mostly in the 80s and 90s about alien abduction. Although I guess in the 70s too. And yeah, so I guess they're trying to condense a lot of that into the Streeb or the Stribe. Uh, sticking with the A plot for a second here, you know, when Sheridan's on the ship that he's been abducted on, he does meet another a Narn, mm -hmm. uh, and he's we find out Sheridan's able to actually speak uh, whatever the Narn language is. Mm -hmm. Did you catch on to that at all? Like, does he have like a, he seems to know a lot more, I think, than he lets on. I, uh, I didn't, I didn't catch that, but now that you mention it, yeah. Although I guess it's not super surprising that he would, you know, know the language of one of the major other powers. You think in like school, they teach like those languages are offered in like high school? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not in high school, but I would say definitely like in the, probably in the military academy. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you go to college to, to, to learn this language or whatever, and then you end up in a high school teaching it to kids who don't care anything about it. <laughs> suck. All right. So did you want to break down the dream sequence for us? Well, you did a lot of painstaking work here. Oh, uh, yeah, I really did. I went to the Lurkers page and cut and, cut and pasted it, Bob. Um, so oh, <laughs> yeah. The most painstaking work. That is, that is the one great thing about Babylon 5 is that it was at the – it wasn't the infancy of the internet, but when the internet kind of started to grow a little bit, you know what I mean? Like you actually uh -huh. had message boards and posts and uh -huh. more than just regular people were looking more than just uh, dorky people were looking at it. So the lurker had all these great things. And this was one of them. He, he broke down the dream sequence for us into each piece. So the first thing you see is Sheridan's in his quarters and in, in his uniform, the lights are out. Okay. No big deal. That's normal. But then the second thing you see is Ivanova is also in the quarters with him. She's in her uniform. Her hair is draped over her left shoulder. The door is open. She raises her fingers to her lips and says, shh, which I got super uh, Twin Peaks vibes from that. Yeah, yeah. Vonova is Laura Palmer, more or less. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then Sheridan looks confused, of course. And then Ivanova now has a raven perched on her right shoulder and says, do you know who I am? The ravens are not what they seem, Matt. Well, the raven usually represents death, right? Uh, it depends. I mean, there's a they're important in a lot of different. Like, I think they're important in Norse culture. They're important in some Northwest Indian cultures. They probably a lot of significance you could attach to a raven. Okay. So, but does it also mean that Ivanova is is death? Is she going to bring the death of Babylon Five? Sounds like traitor shit to me, Bob. Damn, damn. Just, just, oh man, just can't let it go. Can't nope, let it go. Nope. All right, Sheridan looks to his right and finds himself in a Babylon 5 corridor. He looks up, and on the catwalk he sees, in harsh lighting, gripping onto the railing, is another version of himself. It's Sheridan wearing a Psycop uniform, Bob. Psycor uniform. Mm-hmm. So is Sheridan Psycor? Secretly? Mm, possibly. Possibly. Ugh. Well, if he's in Psycor, that means he'd have to be a telepath. 
Maybe. Maybe. All right. God. All right, he looks to his right, and then Garibaldi's also over there on the catwalk in his uniform, but he's got a dove on his left shoulder. And then he says, the man in between is searching for you. Man in between. <laughs> this is like Twin Peaks all over. This is ridiculous. Garibaldi is the uh, man from another place. Apparently. And I guess dove represents life or the good things. I don't know. Ivanova in a veil. We switch to that. She's in a veil and a black dress, which is what you wear to a funeral, is standing behind Sheridan, who's now wearing a turtleneck and a jacket. So mm-hmm. somebody's, somebody's going to die mm-hmm. at some point. And then he turns again. He just keeps turning around. We get a brief glimpse of a metal pin on his left breast of his jacket. It's a Psychor badge. So that confirms earlier that mm-hmm. he is wearing a Psycop psych, a uniform type thing. He's got that leather strap down the right side. Mm-hmm. All right, Ivanova, still wearing the same outfit, says, You are the hand. Now, now this is where I need to this is where I've got to figure this out because if you remember in that previous episode where Londo has a dream, there's the sun and a big hand comes out of the sun. Yeah, yeah. Is that a great hand reaching out? Is that Sheridan's hand? Mm, I don't I, <laughs> I don't I think you're taking the vision too literally. It's you are okay, like two episodes ago there was a big hand coming out of the sun, and this episode they're like so she says, You are the hand. What else am I supposed to do? I I'm just saying you don't don't take the vision too literally. Alright. Well, that part was batshit crazy, but then we get even more batshit crazy when we get Kosh showing up. He's standing behind Sheridan in the corridor, and Sheridan's back in his regular uniform. And Sheridan starts to turn toward him and what seems like mm-hmm. a like a very simple switch of the camera, Sheridan now appears to be sitting down in front of a backlit wall with an organic look like not unlike that of like the interior of the ship like the 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 stream ship ship. yeah and and he tells kosh he goes why are you here okay yes yes very important question and then kosh says we were never away kosh answers that (laughs) and then for the first time and for the first time your mind is quiet enough to hear me so we actually get some inflection in kosh's voice this this time around that's that's actually probably in some ways, maybe the most important thing you get from the dream, unless I'm just failing to to map some of this other stuff on subsequent events. But I, I think what Kosh says there is pretty revealing. All right. Then Sheridan's back in the corridor. He's standing. He says, why am I here? He, he sound, This makes it sound like it sounds like it's a different Sheridan talking in a sense. And then he says, you've always been here, answers Kosh. I mean, what the hell? Like, this is craziness. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then he actually says it later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. And then he comes back at the end and says, "Yeah." So, what? What? I mean, there's a lot to un, to to unravel here, but I know that I, we probably can't at this point because this is going to be revealed later on. It's just meant to be like a, a puzzle for you to go back and be like, "Oh, that's what they were talking about." You know, the raven represents the shadows, and the and the dove represents the earth force, and I, I don't know, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, yeah. I, I would just say, don't expect. Uh, much of it to get like kind of literally realized. Although what I think what Kosh says is very important and weirdly um, the action of Sheridan standing on a catwalk is going to be very important later. So out of all this, Bob, the most important part is Sheridan standing on a catwalk (laughs) and and what Kosh says. Yes. That's that, that as I as I remember the show. That's those are the most important things. Not not them dressed for a funeral. Not the no. random ass birds. No. It's just the catwalk and what Kosh says. Okay, I, right, I, well. I think I think the dressing for the funeral 
and the cryptic sayings and the random ass birds can can factor in to some of the later stuff, but just on the literal level, Sheridan on a catwalk and what Kosh says. That, that's the important stuff. Gotcha. All right, so let's let's move away from the dream now, which I mean, I guess we'll have to come back to later on and see if we can fill in some of the the holes here. But talking about the Mimbari, this is a big deal for the Mimbari now because they're only you, you got four members of the warrior cast, okay, mm-hmm. controlling the Grey Council. Mm-hmm. So if there's ever an issue, they only have to really win over one other person. And this episode really cemented the, the the caste system for me because you have a worker caste and a religious caste. I think previously we hadn't really explored the worker caste. Yeah, yeah. And I think the implication of the show is that the worker caste is usually the odd one out and usually the religious and the warrior caste uh, vote together. Although there have been other, there have been times where Dylan has said stuff that implies that's not the case. Like, I believe she she kind of blames the Earthman Bari War on the religious caste and the warrior caste agreeing and says it was horrible. And the, but the, later, I don't know. Later episodes make the work the make the worker caste seem like they haven't had much of a say hither hitherto. All right. So my thing is, all right, you've got the the Narn and the Centauri going to war, and now mm-hmm. you've got the Mimbari warrior caste in control of making the decisions. So mm-hmm. are they probably going to get involved with this war more so than like would have happened had Delenn still been on the Grey Council? It's a possibility. Okay. All right. So let's move on to the final five minutes of this episode, Bob. Yeah, Bob- yeah. So we've had General Haig show up, and uh, he's played by Robert Foxworth, who is going to play a kind of similar but kind of different role in a DS9 two-parter this year, too. Okay. I did not realize he was in DS9. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's Admiral Layton. I don't know if you remember that name. No, but what's what's the two parter? Do you know the specific name? Uh, it's one of those that it's it doesn't have like it's a to be continued, but it's not a part one, part two. Oh, um, gotcha. yeah, yeah. But I believe I'm almost positive it's later in season three. Okay. Well, they meet with General Haig. And we find out that Sheridan was actually sent to B5 to weed out possible traitors. Dun, dun, dun. We now know that there are people out there who believe that Santiago's death was definitely an assassination, most likely led by the Psychor. Then the team, at the end of it, the team of Sheridan, Ivanova, Garibaldi, and Franklin will now quietly investigate what's going on. So they're like yeah. a little, they're a little team now. But we yep, find out yep. Sher- Sheridan, Sheridan was there under... Uh, a, t- a team is a nice way to put it. Other people might call it a, a Bonapartist conspiracy. Yeah, well, it, it's pretty weird. I guess, I mean, yeah. like like you've said before, uh, now Ivanova truly is a traitor now, Bob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's, but she's, yeah. She's spying on Earth Force. It, yeah, it is, it is kind of interesting that the main opposition to the uh, the assassination of Santiago uh, appears to come from the military. Um, you know, historically speaking, one would say that wouldn't usually be the case, but it but it is interesting. On a side note, too, you get Garibaldi. He's supposed to utilize like the Rangers as well from uh, Sinclair. Yeah, which up, we saw in earlier episodes right, too. To, to keep up with what's going on with the shadows, right? Yep. Yep. And then you've got the Narn Centauri War about to go full force. 
with Earth, Psychor is working uh, the Earth Earth Force plot back home. I mean, it's cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. It's crazy, Bob. Yeah, yeah, things are things are getting intense. The uh, conspiracies are, are are sparking. It's craziness. <laughs> I'm just saying, and, and everybody's involved. Apparently, I mean, everybody's got their own little piece here. It's like a it's like a space opera, Bob. <laughs> it is indeed a space opera. It is indeed. Anything else about this particular episode before we move on to DS9? Uh, no, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. I would say, what would would you agree that next to Coming of the Shadows, this has probably been the most important episode of the season thus far? Yeah, the last five minutes, yes. Yeah, Unless, yeah. 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 The, uh, I, I will say that I don't think they name the Narn pilot Talon in the episode, but that is Talon, and he will... He will uh, he won't be a hugely important, but he'll be somewhat important later in the show. Well, with DS9. Yeah, so in Heart of Stone, we've got an A-plot where Kira and Odo's runabout um, and their squabbling on that runabout is interrupted as they pursue a Maquis raider to an unstable moon. And Kira gets entrapped in a steadily growing crystalline formation. And then in the B-plot, we have Nog attempting to bribe Sisko into offering him a Starfleet apprenticeship. And then in the C-plot, we have Sisko, Bashir, and O'Brien planning a baby shower for Ensign Pran, who has uh, twin budding hatchlings. Uh, Pran's species is never specified in the show, but he's apparently mentioned several times. And he apparently uh, is winged, asexual, aquatic, and humanoid. So it's quite an interesting combination. Okay. Somehow I completely missed the C-plot watching this episode. <laughs> It's just the one scene where uh, Cisco and Bashir are talking about it. Okay, I must have like not paid attention at that part. I did get the A and B plot though, so you, two out of three just, ain't bad. I just thought it was wild, mostly just because Ensign Pran and his species are winged, asexual, aquatic, and humanoid. That's an all. That's just a. Uh, that's a lot of. That's a lot of traits that you normally yeah. don't see together. You never see his ass on DS Nine either, do you? No, no. Like I said, we never we never see him. He's just mentioned uh, in several other episodes too. Yeah, I mean, I want to see or, the winged asexual aquatic humanoid character on DS9. It would be fun. It would be fun. So let's talk about this A-plot for a minute. Did you catch that something was off with Kira before the actual big reveal that it was a uh, changeling? Or, excuse me, a founder, not really a changeling, a founder? Well, yeah, but both would be fine, I think. Yeah. Um, so not really. I didn't remember this episode, but when... When Kira did start to confess her feelings for Odo, I knew I assumed it must be a changeling because I knew that you know they don't act, Odo and Kira don't actually get together till much later in the show. So at that point, I knew it didn't fit with my like mental map of the show. But yeah. no, I, I didn't. I didn't catch anything like kind of off about the changeling's performance of Kira. I just thought it was weird that that one spot where Kira decided to stand is what where how this thing like got around her foot and started growing like that one tiny area, which it made me question what was going on. Yeah, yeah, it was a very kind of weird plot contrivance. Which, like, granted, the fact that it was all being faked by the by the founder makes somewhat better. Although, yeah, it still it still is a kind of a weird plot contrivance. Um. You know, but 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 we do find out that it was a founder, and you know they were just uh, testing Odo's character. Yeah, yeah, and specifically, I believe investigating what has made him stay on the station and, instead of joining the Great Link. 
Probably because they do shit like that all the time, try to trick you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not something I think we associate that much with the founders. But if you think about it, they do love their social experiments, right? Like the part two of the search is them running a weird simulation on most of the people they capture from the Defiant. Yeah, they're always testing people. It's because they were tested on them. Because well, wait, no, not all of them were. But Odo was. Odo doesn't like that. He doesn't like to be tested on. Yeah, I mean, I think the backstory, if I remember right, is that the founders were abused by the solids in the distant past. Hence, why they're so militant. But yeah, yeah, it it it, it is an interesting and very kind of '90s alien abduction vibe. I mean, I think we've, I think we noted like way back in the pilot episode how much uh, alien abduction kind of fit, factors into Babylon 5 and DS9 and Voyager's early stuff, which all, you know, all came out in the mid nineties. Oh, it's because X-Files was hot. Yeah. Although I think X-Files was just kind of a reflection of that thing in the culture too. Right. So B plot with Nog, doesn't Nog eventually become like a captain of his own starship? Um, in a future episode called the, I think the visitor, we see like in an alternate future, we see Nog as a captain. And then I think Nog is a captain in either the novel verse or Star Trek online or both, but I'm not super familiar with like the novel sequels to DS nine and Voyager or Star Trek online. But I think in, I want to say in both, he's a captain of his own ship. Okay. I want to say Star Trek online. He is because I think you run into him at one point, but I just could not remember if that was him or not. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And like I said, I think we'll see, like, in one alternate future timeline, we'll see a Captain Nog. I did want to take a note. So, like, it seems to be a little off for O'Brien to be the extreme holosuit sports guy. Uh, but it is something that they're kind of consistent with him on this show about the man really likes the, uh, really likes the extreme holosuit sports. Yeah, the kayaking or whatever he was doing. Yeah, and then the, he was doing something where he kept, like, dislocating his shoulder and Bashir and Keiko were getting angry at him like in an earlier episode. Yeah. That is very surprising. He doesn't seem like he'd fit that bill. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, although I guess we also know later in the show, he really likes doing, uh, doing war reenactments with Bashir. <laughs> he likes to be tortured and he likes to go down rapid rivers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess there is a masochism to O'Brien. That's kind of the fundamental thing. <laughs> I, watched, I watched Lawrence of Arabia last night, and there's a masochism in uh, T.E. Lawrence, and there's a masochism in Miles O'Brien. So I did, I did want to make another point about O'Brien's character, too. It's kind of funny. Of all the people on the station, he seems to be the best at, like, both socializing with Odo, but also, like, socializing Odo. I don't, you know, I guess it's maybe just his experience serving with data on the enterprise, but you know, we, from all of Odo's conversation with Kira, like a large part of his conversation with Kira is like things he's done with O'Brien or things O'Brien has introduced him to. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, O'Brien's probably like one of his only like friends, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's also kind of funny. We find out that, um, O'Brien has gotten Odo into reading detective novels, although they don't specify, you know, is it Dixon Hill? Is it Raymond Chandler? They don't specify. Yeah. It, that would that would have been fun. Um, you got any favorite detective novels, Matt? Mainly just the James Elroy, the L.A. confidential novels. 
Yeah, yeah, those are those are some of my favorites. I really like uh, Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins novels, which are also L.A., and uh, I like James Salas's Lee Archer novels, which are New Orleans mostly. One other thing we do learn in this episode is that Odo actually has a full Bajoran name, which is Odo Atal. Yeah, yeah, I'd completely forgotten that he could go by Odo Atal if he wanted. Yeah, and apparently that means nothing. Yeah, I think it means nothing in Latin, too, not just Bajoran. Yeah, so poor Odo, just sad name, <laughs> sad choice. Yeah, yeah. I did want to say that this, I mean, I thought there was a lot of really good acting in this um, episode, despite the kind of hokey premise of Kira having her foot stuck in a crystalline entity. So, um, you know, we just saw Aaron Eisenberg uh, have a pretty prominent role in, in an episode where, you know, Nog is just being a prig and being the sexist douchebag to the women he and Jake are on a date with. And it was really remarkable to watch him go from that performance, which, you know, it was just what was written for him, but I, I didn't think was like particularly memorable to uh, like really kind of pathos laden performance with Cisco, where he's explaining to Cisco, like what Ferengi culture has done to his father and how he doesn't, he doesn't want to be like him. You know, he's got that really kind of evocative line eye of Rom doesn't have the lobes and neither do I. Right. That was, that was a powerful scene. And it really shows that even though the Ferengi act the way they do, still some of them can see that, you know, that's not necessarily, they don't have to follow through with what their culture expects, you know, like just because the cultural expectations are that they, you know, be greedy and play out the plays at the part of them having to be like businessmen. Yeah. They don't, they don't yeah. have to do that. They can expand and do other things. It was, it was interesting. I was, I was very surprised by his performance in this. Yeah, yeah, it was really, it was really good. I, I, I mean, I, I didn't have any negative memories of Aaron Eisenberg, um, who just passed away a couple of years ago, I believe. But I, I do have to say, I was like really impressed by this episode. I'd, I'd forgotten how good he was in the role. The only other thing I have from this episode is that I just feel really bad for Odo because he doesn't think Kira could truly love him. Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty brutal use of his kind of police detective skills, right? Like if he's he's observed Kira carefully for years and he, he doesn't see any signs that she loves him, which is, yeah, that, that was pretty brutal. See, I think we pretty much covered what we would usually do for uh, do for Deep State Watch. But I did just want to ask, um, do you feel justified knowing that on some level you're technically correct that Ivanova is a traitor now that all four of the main uh, Earth Force people on the station are uh, conspiring against the president? Yeah, I always knew Ivanova was a traitor, Bob. I mean, she you is just a didn't traitor. know everybody else was a traitor, too. Yeah, they're all traitors as well. But I mean, when you think about your senior staff, how the hell does Sheridan <laughs> think any of these people are trustworthy? <laughs> like he's like he's like I've Real. been watching I've been watching these people for six months they're trustworthy I'm like no they're not none of them are do all of them have lied to you at some point well what is what is Garibaldi lied to Sheridan about all right you got me on Garibaldi maybe that's why he has the dove Bob that's the dove he's he is the <laughs> one true he's the true trustworthy person it's, and then, it's the dove of no lies and then Ivanova she is not. That's why she what, has what, the black Also, what is, a, what is Ivanova lied to Sheridan about, other than your kind of, uh, you know, uh, fervid conspiracy theories about Ivanova? What no, is she actually lied to Sheridan about? Bob, people can listen to the, all the other episodes where I've gone off on Ivanova. I'm not going to go into detail. 
<laughs> That's just because you don't remember. <laughs> Not going into detail. Just saying. Well, I just and, think I just think it's weird. He's like, oh yeah, I've been with these people for six months, and uh, yeah, they're, they're all trustworthy. We can trust them. A lot of de- weird, a lot of weird shit's going on in those six months too. I agree, Garibaldi's a, a dirtbag, but you know, Franklin he he did lie about the whole underground railroad thing, but you know, underground railroads are good, actually, <laughs> and uh, not and to the, Sheridan, and not I, to Garibaldi. Wait a minute, Sheridan, maybe Garibaldi Sheridan, is trustworthy. <laughs> Damn, that's grim. That's grim. Yeah. Eh, you know, it's they've bonded over the stresses of the first six months of season two. I also feel like, uh, this is just my opinion, putting Franklin in this little group of people, I just think is pushing it a little bit. I think of the of the, of the four, honest, uh, of the three, Garibaldi, Franklin, and Ivanova, I feel like Franklin is your least trustworthy, and I feel like they just stuck him in there for some reason, like plot point later on down but, the road. But, who is Franklin's father? Oh yeah, he's the general. You're right. Oh. Yeah, so maybe maybe uh, maybe they put Franklin in because they want to try and recruit his father later. Oh, forgot about Gropos. Yeah, that was the last episode. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. If you're if you're gonna if you're gonna launch a coup, you need the Gropos. Gropos. All right, let's move on to Thirst Watch, Bob. Yeah. So did you get uh, some thirsty vibes from uh, Lanier for Delenn? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that Delenn and Sheridan may form like some kind of a triangle with Lanier at some point. Yeah, yeah. And then we've already uh, covered the sort of anti-thirst or negative thirst between Kira and Odo. Very depressing. Very sad. So damn sad. Poor Odo. Poor Odo. And then I did want to ask just kind of a general question, you know, because we've been doing a Shadows Watch segment. So this is, you know, we kind of had an interesting pair where both episodes are kind of teasing the big threat. Um, Heart of Stone was teasing the Dominion and All Alone in the Night was teasing the Shadows. Any thought about how the two shows are foreshadowing their enemies right now? Yeah, it's very similar. I mean, you've got, you know, something's coming up. You know, something's around the bend. It makes you want to keep watching. Keeping that yeah. epi- episodic piece going. It's kind of interesting that... Um, Odo is kind of the main piece of focus for the for the founders, while it would seem like the kind of experimenting with Sheridan is the main piece of focus for the Shadows. It's kind of an interesting contrast. So I, how does this alien tie in with the Shadows? How does the, the Streeb is just one of their little buddies like that other yeah, scary yeah, alien they, we saw earlier? Yeah, they're, they're, they're like minor servants. Okay. I, I'm getting, I'm kind of tired of that point. I just want the Shadows to show up because they keep sitting their minions. It's like, it's like some Rita Repulsa shit, Bob. You get, you're getting fed up with the minions, Matt? You're not impressed with the minions? Yeah, send me the actual shadows so I can see what they look like and what they do. <laughs> so who is your character of the week, Matt? Uh, it goes to Nog for admitting his father could be so much better, so much more, if he didn't follow the Ferengi culture, and for Nog for actually wanting to break the cycle. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I would give it to, uh, I just wanted to shout out Nana Visitor and Renee Abrajornes. Both do great acting in this one, despite the kind of hokey premise. And it's especially the way uh, Visitor strains her voice is kind of interesting in this episode. But I, I think on the whole, like, you have to give it to Odo. Really good, really good acting uh, this episode. I really enjoyed it. All right, episode of the week. My episode of the week is All Alone in the Night. And it's primarily for the dream sequence in that last five minutes. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, no, no argument. As as much good stuff as there was in Heart of Stone, it was just a little too, a uh, 
a little too uneven. Mm-hmm. All right, so next week, Bob, we've got Babylon 5, Acts of Sacrifice, and Deep Space Nine, Destiny. I uh, don't remember either of those at all. All right, well, we look forward to them then. I know you uh, you apparently hate Acts of Sacrifice, so I'm uh, looking. No, 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 to I don't. That. I don't hate Acts of Sacrifice. I, I I did watch it ahead a little bit, and yeah, it's got it's got a really stupid scene in it that I think we're gonna have an interesting talk about. So tune in for that. All right, that's coming. So this has been Babylon Five versus DS Nine, the galaxy's great podcast about the two great '90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>